You're listening to the Umami Podcast, conversations with producers, purveyors, and scholars exploring food choices we make as a culture. I'm Elise Ballard, and I'm here with my friend and co-host, Chris Feifel. Thanks for being here. TNE Network. Good food ahead of me. Mm. Lucky you. Speaking of good food. <laughs> Speaking of good food. Chris, do you remember our conversation with Valerie Seagrass? I do. We talked to her last spring. We talked to her about all the seasonal stuff, just yeah. the importance of seasons. Yeah. And uh, I was surprised at the, the breaking down of, of some of those seasons to the, you know, the 13 moons and whatnot. Mm, the 13 uh, moons. Um, that really struck me. I, I love that idea. And she really uh, shed some light on some of the indigenous food around the Pacific Northwest. She sure did. And she basically broke it down to what she references in the podcast, which is that we need to, as a community, eat food, not too much, mostly plants. And she has a podcast of her own called Live With The Seasons, where she does exactly that. She puts out one podcast, one episode per season, and she just released her fall episode. Well, at least let's talk to Valerie Seacrest. How did you get started in food and nutrition? Well, I was hungry. <laughs> I think that um, for me, I had a lifetime of mentorship with um, just the way my, my mom always encouraged me to celebrate food and culture and her sisters, my aunties who all are um, just sort of fierce environmentalist women who always had a love with uh, of, of food and recipe and local traditions. Um, so I kind of felt like I was really set up for that. That's great. I saw in a piece uh, that you wrote uh, where you called Nettle your first plant teacher. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Of course. Yeah, there are so many just moments of sort of reckoning in your life. And um, Nettle was at the center of one of those for me. I was in my, uh, my senior year studying nutrition at Bastyr University, and I took a class with a woman named Jennifer Adler, who is an incredible um, nutrition educator and counselor. She's, I think, in Croatia now, leading food tours, doing something amazing, as always. And she brought us outside, and we talked about wild foods along the trails of St. Edward's Park, and then came inside and... Um, she had a cup of tea waiting for us, for all of her students. And so we sat down and started drinking this cup of tea. And at the time I was eating this really pristine, you know, diet like a nutritionist. So someone geeking out on food would and uh, was still like kind of chronically ill, felt really stressed out just because I was a student. And, um, and when I drank that cup of tea, I just felt like something rooted out of my body and that I was returning into some place of wellness and strength. And I just felt so fortified and became completely obsessed with nettles. It was a cup <laughs> of tea with, with stinging nettles. I mean, we, 
we drank it in silence for three minutes. And there was just something about that moment, like connecting with your body and being mindful of what's going on around you and how you're connecting to that food, um, that your innate wisdom of your human body, when you give it a chance, will let you know exactly what you need and how powerful food can make you feel good and bad. And so I began drinking nettle every day and stinging myself with it and finding <laughs> it and drawing it and harvesting it and telling anybody I could all about nettle and their, and its wonderful nourishment and um, healing powers in this world. And to this day, I still consider myself a student of nettle. I mean, on, you can't get me to stop talking about it, obviously, right, Elise? Well, you, you talk quite a bit about uh, food sovereignty, and I think you just nailed some of the um, mind and body health benefits for eating, you know, locally or what uh, the um, the climate and culture that you grow up in will also help you nourish um, how your body grows in that climate and culture. Um, can you speak more on that and that kind of health tie between uh, what's grown locally and if you uh, devour it locally? Yeah, I think for me, food sovereignty also deploys the power of community and eating collectively. Um, because when we collectively choose what to eat, there are so many more transformational impacts that can be made. Like we, we learn to cherish deeply what is directly around us and how to care for it and how to advocate for it and how to gift it to one another. And we know the like true weight of its meaning when we can when we can do that because um, because it's so inherently who we are to um, to eat those local foods and and build community and get to know your local producer food producer um, be it a fisherman or a harvester or a farmer that we all you know I don't think that we've ever in all of human history been this far removed from the source of our food. And so um, why not like dive deep into knowing where your water comes from and then sharing that information with your community so we can all be better advocates. That to me is like the power of food sovereignty. And is that the, the sort of fire that was lit for you that, that, that got you in this to begin with and, and that got you to begin speaking out? Yeah, I think so. I, I didn't want to be the kind of nutritionist that came back to my community and counseled people on a diet that I knew they had a hard time accessing in the first place. You know, for us, mm. we know that um, diabetes is a symptom, really, of a bigger problem, which for tribal communities is the removal uh, and the severing of our ties from a food system that fed us for thousands of years and organized our culture. I mean, it's the an original animator of our culture. And um, and then another diet was superimposed. You know, it's not like we woke up one day and decided to stop eating right. our traditional foods. And so um, part of the healing process is returning to those food traditions and doing that alongside people because I wasn't, you know, some master um, foodie <laughs> of muckleshoot foods. I had to learn from my community and a lot of mentors and a lot of people 
um, a lot of elders who've passed who still hold me up who were from Muckleshoot and surrounding communities that really spent time teaching me about our foods and food traditions. But but that discovery and that return is part of the healing journey. And so I didn't want to I didn't want to take that opportunity away from people. And that means that we all have to do the work together. And how fun is that that we get to like celebrate our foods in this lifetime. I really believe it was the it it is this work that we're carrying is the the visions that our ancestors always had for us. And so I feel so blessed to be able to live in this time and don't know how I would live, you know, my life in any other way. What's uh, what's one of the ingredients or um, uh, that you've discovered recently um, that is uh, the kind of uh, tipped your cap back a little bit? Oh my gosh, there's always so many, like every year I'm taken by something. <laughs> and I this mean, is it's, it's sorry to jump in, but it, I mean, the Puget Sound area is, is uh, and I hope you agree with this, is a really diverse and vast ecosystem. Um, I love exploring it myself. And I think about all the, the delicious things that I have no idea about that are just either we're stepping over or paddling by. So okay, please continue. thousand percent. I totally agree. Our, our, you know, over 300 different kinds of foods were eaten here pre-contact uh, in the Puget Sound region alone. That's sometimes just like 50 miles from white cap to white cap. So there really has been, you know, there's a lot to choose from. Um, and I think it can be overwhelming too at first because there's so much to choose from. And I always go back to the teaching that um, that we have in our community that you don't teach all your children the same thing. You teach each of them something different because if we all knew everything we needed to know, then we wouldn't need each other and then the world would fall apart. And so I, I just try to like commit to one thing at a time. Obviously, like nettles are my first commitment and they continue to be. But um, getting back to your question, the, the food recently that I've just become really intrigued with and I'm almost like scared to say it because I know where it could lead. But um is mushrooms like <laughs> i've i've not liked mushrooms and i i, I don't like i'm not like it's a texture thing i've tried it more than a dozen times i've yes. wanted to like them um so badly but <laughs> <laughs> my gateway to mushrooms was on pizza i was like okay if yeah. I, I, I can it's it's kind of slimy ish on there i don't know how to cook it yet it was that and uh a portobello's um on a grill <laughs> with some nice olive oil and some salt and stuff those were that's that's how i started kind of roping that in i identify with this uh, with, <laughs> with with introducing mushrooms into a diet yeah, it's funny. mushrooms it's, are our our logo. That's our we are we are all about the chanterelle mushroom with the umami podcast, <laughs> and that's because I love them. I have for a very long time. When I discovered, oh wait, wild! I didn't even think about that. It um it it lit a fire for me. So that's neat that you're um your that's your latest interest. Tell us more about that. Like which types and where are you getting them and. Oh my gosh. Well, right now I'm on the hunt for morels because it's the season. So we're like, we're in torrential aquatic in the sky, aquatic river in the sky moments here. So that means we need a couple sunny days. And then I think, you know, Chant or uh, morels will be popping up through the earth. I've, I just find their presence so incredible and mysterious 
and um, the I cooked a bunch of. So last year for Mother's Day, we got a fresh uh, spring salmon from the Columbia, and we just cooked a whole bunch of stuff, wild foods over the fire all day. And I had this batch of mor- morels that someone had gifted me, and wild ramps, and. Mm. Uh, and I just sort of tossed them on the grill and salted them. And I threw some rosemary, you know, down next to it. And they were like incredible. All of our moms that came over couldn't get their, couldn't keep their hands off of these morels. And I was like, that's the power of mushrooms. They just sort of like reach out and grab onto you, you know, there's something <laughs> yeah. cool about they, that. <laughs> they promote a network. They promote communal eating. They, they promote communication. Um, it's really neat. And I never get tired of seeing them grow in time lapse. I don't care what type it is. Yeah. Just watching. They really do just come up out of the ground and just activate and they're kind of never restful until they're done. So true. And they do work like they heal and restore the land and in our bodies. Like, how cool is that? That makes me think of this. How much trial and error or um, maybe uh, some other kind of communication went into um, uh, figuring out what foods around here to eat and and, um, um, kind of what to use as medicines and what treated this that went with this? I mean, can you speak on that at all? Um, I have learned kind of a method of studying and deliberating and figuring out what's best to share as well. Like there, you know, there is this sort of perception that the Pacific Northwest is this wild, untamed land, untouched by man. I mean, that's, I think, the definition of wild or wilderness. It's like untamed uninhabited land um but that's not the case like this was a very cultivated intentionally cultivated um foodscape for thousands of years even fish management salmon management uh elk herd management that was all happening um and so just trying to figure out what those foods are that can be shared that do enjoy being harvested in a good way, of course, like not going out and backhoeing up all the, you know, uh, thimbleberry you can find or whatever, mm. but like actually being able to harvest something that, you know, is going to um, return in abundance the next year. It relies on your harvest. And those are foods like, strawberry which are really prolific and um wild blackberry and salmon berry um salal berry there are so many berries i'm stuck on that right now but (laughs) (laughs) but then there are also plants that need to be harvested that aren't given as much attention like camas and chocolate lily or fritillaria um wild onions you know those bulbs and roots those prairie plants that have been kind of overlooked and overdeveloped in our region, I think are really important to pay close attention to and start planting more of everywhere in your garden. Ferns, we've got fiddlehead ferns. That's a food that's out right now. That's a a traditional food. And so the, you know, the sort of diving into this tradition was finding the elders who were carrying the work and working alongside them as much as possible. I give great thanks to Hank Gobin from Tulalip, who really spent hours and hours and hours mentoring me, days and days and days, and and Rudy Reeser, a Cowlitz elder, who um, 
you know, had been just a champion of traditional foods and still is. He's the director for the Center of Rural Indigenous Studies. And Kimberly Miller from Skokomish, who has been just holding it up in her community for so long. All those people really welcomed me in and, and lifted me up and handed on their their knowledge, knowing that I would care for it as best as I possibly could. So I try really hard not to let them down. Would you say that your book, Indigenous Home Cooking, is a, a survey of what you have learned from people like that, from the people you just mentioned? Um, is it is it a list of sorts of, of what's available here and, and what traditions have come? Is, is it a writing down of something that was formerly just passed on? Um, I feel like that book, Indigenous Home Cooking, was an aha moment that I had with several other food advocates across the country. So that has co-authored with the Indigenous Food Lab, um, the... Uh, founders of Indigenous Food Lab are Sean Sherman and Dana Thompson, who Sean's a sous chef who both of them founded the Awamni restaurant in Minneapolis, which is like impossible apparently to eat at now because it's so wildly successful. That's great. But we, you know, we did a lot of touring around the country together talking about this topic uh, we're talking about tonight about, um, about this. And I had done this quick study on how most Americans, this is an NHANE study, where most Americans are not reaching their daily dietary um, allowances on micronutrients like minerals, um, you know, calcium, magnesium, iron. The only thing we seem to be getting enough of is sodium. <laughs> and so um, when I started looking at that and comparing it to what Coast Salish ancestors would be eating, I saw this in like the standards don't even get close to what my ancestors were eating and when i started researching what foods are highest in those things it was always a first food of north america it was always pumpkin seed oysters raspberries uh strawberries mm. you know blueberries like all of the foods that are from here are turns out needs to you know are our remedies that we need as a as a culture and when we look at other countries around the globe, how well they fully embrace their food culture that is mostly from their own lands. Um, I think we, it's time for us as a country to do that, to really define and learn to be advocates and protect our first foods of, this la of these lands because they're the remedy. They're what we need. And it seems we're, we're such a large uh, piece of land that it would be diverse from one section to the other. It's not just Italian food or, you know, mm. um, we're entirely too large and have too many diverse ecosystems. So uh, it, it brings me back to the idea of um, how it sustains yourself, uh, you know, healthy in, in the example of if you eat honey from uh, the area that you grow up in, you're going to maybe fortify yourself against some of those allergies in that area or, or it, it, you know, sustains you a little bit more because it's not shipped across the country and it's not processed this way and made to be kept this way. It's <laughs> the solution's right in front of us. We just need to kind of um, have a little bit more awareness about it, maybe a little more education too. I fully agree. When we're versed in the foods of our area, we, we promote food security, food sustainability. We're eating things seasonally when they're at their peak vitality, which means we receive that medicine. Um, 
there are so many reasons to get to know, you know, the lands that you come from. It's what helps attune us to where we live and thrive and belong. Mm. I think that you're, you're saying being well-versed in those things is important. And I think that's a really important way to phrase that because it isn't just about, okay, here's this list of ingredients that are, that go way back from the Pacific Northwest. They grow here indigenously or whatever. It's also about how do you recognize them? How do you cultivate them? How do you prepare them? Um, can you say a little bit more about that? Like, where does that knowledge come from um, now, now that we've become divorced from those things so much? Mm, I feel like uh, I remember some of my friends, I grew up in the desert, like in Fallon, Nevada, in the middle of nowhere where you could see nothing for miles but sagebrush, like gigantic tumbleweeds. And um, I remember my friends coming to visit and being so overwhelmed by all the green around here. Like they felt like they were just being swallowed up. And I could see that. And I also want us all to remember that we have superpowers as human beings. And one of those superpowers is to be able to look at something and identify what it is. And we spend a lot of time doing that with logos and old diplomats, you know, old presidents of this country. Like we can look at something and say, I know what that Starbucks logo means. I know what it's good mm. for. I know where to find it. I know what I'm going to get from it, you know. We're good at that. We can do that same thing with plants. We can just spend a little bit of time. It does. It really takes no time to learn 10 plants, 10 native plants. You could really, do, you, you could knock that out this week. Um, my daughters <laughs> have been doing this with me, you know, since as early as I could take them out to the nettle patch. Like I have mm. them, pictures of them doing it at two years old. They can name easily 30 native plants and what they're used for. They know how to, how to make rose hip food out of rose hips and you know evergreen tree tips and they know how to harvest nettles and tell other people how to harvest nettles so kids too like i this isn't uh, this is knowledge that anybody can tap into and it's so empowering yeah i love that as a call to action and i think that's what we try to you know we we try to elicit that on this show what is the call to action? What are we supposed to do about these things that we're discussing? And, and so I love that as one, which is teach your kids and you break it down in a way that makes it so much more approachable. The, you know, just learn 10 ingredients, learn about 10 things that grow wild here. Um, are there yeah. some other ones like that? Some other ways in the kitchen perhaps? Yeah, maybe like a nice, uh, um, a, a a gateway introduction into uh, by, put this ingredient now in your food, like nettles. Like if, if I were to go make a nettle tea uh, in two, three days from now or so, what's the, what are my steps? Um, I would say, yeah, right now is a good time to kind of start some, some uh, nettle spots are ready for um, harvesting for tea. When it's ready. How about when it when it's ready? And yeah. also, when is it going to be ready? <laughs> I've taken notes. What's this seasonally? So, yeah, no, nettles are great. They're useful in all, you know, seasons. So they're food first um, in the early spring. And then in like late spring, summertime, they become, the leaves get more fibrous. So you just wouldn't want to eat them. They're better for like tossing in a pot of hot water, you know. Mm. Um, and... And so when they get about waist high, 
I would say uh, you can harvest a leaf for tea and you would want to dry it out. And then um, there's something to making sure it's dried and then reconstituting it in hot water just sort of cracks open the cell walls and then the water gets in there and does its solvent thing where it pulls out and extracts the minerals really efficiently and uh, what versus it being like osmosis, right? Like straight water cell to water, <laughs> mm. it won't work as, as well. Um, and I would encourage, you know, one cup of nettle tea is equivalent to one calcium supplement, except mm. you don't have to worry about if it's actually calcium or if it's chalk. And you're also really getting point. that like that benefit of the flavor of wherever you're harvesting it from. So you're sort of, you know, in ceremony with the land in that way, which mm. is pretty cool. There's you yeah. talked about ramps to wild onions. Um, I guess that's another uh, thing that, that, so we've got morels, we've got, we've got ramps. <laughs> Those are a couple of, of great examples. Um, I wonder about some of the things that are not necessary, you know, some of the situations in which we can't access something out of the ground. We, we don't know to get it. We're not around it. We're in concrete, whatever. Um, you have talked a little bit about foods that are North American foods that are indigenous foods that are available in like a mainstream supermarket. Can you talk about a few of those? Yeah. Um, squash comes to mind, right? Like corn, beans, squash, sunflower seeds. Um, one of my favorite recipes that Sean and Dana make um, are sunflower butter cookies. Oh my God. That's so good. They take like sunflower seeds and then sunflower butter and they whiz it up in a food processor and then they pan fry it in a cast iron skillet and put some like jam on top of it. High in, you know, good quality fats, minerals, fiber. Uh, sunflower has some zinc in it. So to help boost your immune system and your positive mental attitude. I mean, it's, you know, you can make that really quick. Um, they also toss some maple syrup in there for sweetening it and to kind of bind it all together. I mean, it's a really simple, um, a, a really simple addition. And they, they put pumpkin seeds and sunflower seeds on top of squash and it just makes me crazy. It's so good. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's super delicious. Um, and surprisingly, there are a lot of, you know, you can find nettle tea in the in the tea aisle at stores, you can find dandelion root tea at most grocery stores now. And we love to make dandelion root lattes where you sort of boil it up for simmer it for like 20 minutes and then add equal parts. Um, almond oil or um, hazelnut milk would be like the, cause hazelnuts are native here, right? So hazelnut milk, or you could do coconut milk or oat milk, um, but it is the most delicious thing ever. And dandelion <laughs> root's incredible for your liver. It helps with like people who have kind of brain fog. I've been using it a lot for people who have long-term COVID, who specifically had sort of skin eruptions happen out of it. So dandelion root has been really effect effective at helping them to stand back up again. That like long haul, I feel tired. Yeah, Daniel push over the plateau. Pepper. Sure. Wow. That's great. I wonder about um, some of the foods that are also, well, first of all, let me ask a question about 
dandelion roots. <laughs> Could you feasibly just find a dandelion and dig up the root and could that is is that it yes that's all just you do anywhere just yeah. wherever it is okay. <laughs> Wait, what, so what was the first part go back again <laughs> um yeah it, wow if yeah, you wanted ahead. to harvest dandelion you would just go out into your yard make sure like no dogs don't chill out there right that's not fun but like yeah you go out and um you would pluck the whole entire plant right out of the ground and you're there for also weeding your garden which everyone loves um and aerating the soil um i would i would recommend only harvesting dandelion root in the fall season like after the flower dies back after it's done its seeding thing because then the root gets really fat and all the medicine and vitality is in that spot in the plant but yeah it's really simple you just look for that famous dandelion flower one stem one flower the the denty denty lion's tooth right the tooth of the lion leaf um and pull that root right out of the ground. <laughs> That's a really great illustration for how simple and how basic and how right under our noses some of these things are. Um and I love the the idea of just sort of like uh, opening opening that portal into the world um if you we're able to just suddenly go outside and see everything as a potential source of nutrition. Um, what a what a gift that would be, you know, what a, a dimension that would offer. Yeah, a total paradigm shift too from the way we treat dandelions in the broad media, right? It's like grab that pesticide spray and spray it and it bursts into flames. Like it's actually really big medicine. <laughs> <laughs> Remove it from and my sight. <laughs> right. Um, and it's free food right outside your door. It, I mean, <laughs> and being able to um, find food like this and, and incorporate it into your cooking, I guess the backhanded um, benefit, if someone's not really paying attention, is the cons the custodianship that you will now have, the understanding that you continue to grow with what's your actual surroundings, and then how you influence them and they influence you. It's a it's you know um, uh, a a really nice connection that you get with the land, even if it was just because you wanted to eat something delicious. Yeah. That is so important to the, you're reminding me to say that we're not just, we're not separate from our environment. And unfortunately, our built environments kind of train us to think that way. But when we, you know, we're, as humans, we study the ecosystem and we also have to recognize that we are a part of it. When you see those pictures of like, here's a wetland and the ducks are there and the cattails are there and the irises are there we're also there and what how we choose to show up in that space can promote the sustainability and the thrive like help things thrive in that space or not we can also just ignore it and what an unfortunate opportunity that we are missing <laughs> like yeah 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 I, it also makes me think about you know some of the things that are happening right now to affect the sources of this wild food and access to them. You know, everything from just the abundance of concrete to um, the, you know, um, homogenization of the, the crops that, that we cultivate and, and that we grow. Um, 
is some of your work undoing that or taking us reversing that damage? Um, or what maybe you can comment on what is the work out there that is reducing that damage or reversing it? I, I've had some moments in my classes like that where, um, you know, I've had almost a hundred muckle shoots come through a class I taught called honoring the gift of native foods. Um, and it's a three month course, a couple, we meet a couple times a week and everyone sort of tr is charged with one sort of principle to live by for the week. And when we got to talking about, um, processed meats, in particular, I think that had the greatest impact when we look at, um, you know, our treaty rights, one of our treaty rights here is to be able to harvest our own um, wild game. We get one elk and, um, and we fill our freezers, but then we might go to the grocery store and buy like ground beef. And this is not to like vilify ground beef, but at mm -hmm. least we know where that animal came from and that it's like, one animal and there's probably a cool hunting story behind it you know mm. um, versus like the mystery of mm. that meat that's sort of real sterile looking with the saran wrap on top that you just have to kind of treat with uh, extra special care <laughs> so uh yeah i i've heard a lot of people at, at the end of that class be like i'm going home and i'm gonna make elk like <laughs> we're gonna right. And even if you're not hunting your own elk, I, I like this, this very action of just knowing where your meat comes from. That's yeah. a step in that direction, hopefully. Yeah, for all of us recovering vegetarians out there, <laughs> we, you know, we live in a time where we have some better options. I've, I've seen that change in my lifetime, and I appreciate that. I really do. There was, yeah, a, a solid decade I abstained from meat because it was just too questionable for me and I couldn't find something that really aligned with my values and um, yeah yeah I think that's a really important the meat piece is something that we will be coming back to again and again with yeah. this with this show um, because yes because because vegetarianism is part of the answer and if we are going to eat meat, is there a way to do it more uh, thoughtfully and more sustainably? Um, yeah, I think it's Michael Pollan said, like, eat more plants. That's the one thing all nutritionists can agree on, right? <laughs> we could all just eat more plants. <laughs> something like eat food, mostly plants, not too much or something like that <laughs> is his, is his yeah. motto. One of his amazing mottos. Yeah, he's got a few of them. <laughs> Now, um, now, Valerie, do you, do you have a favorite spot and a favorite time of year to visit it here in the Puget Sound? It doesn't have to be the number one, but just in uh, up in there, is it one of your favorite spots to um, to to go out there um, and just uh, bask it all in? Uh, it's so hard. I have two that actually come to mind, and this is important because it's telling of the span of the breach that my tribe has, you know, my ancestors are so grounded. We weren't a stationary place. Uh, we moved along with the plants and fish as they came into season. Mm -hmm. And so for me, I love being out in Elliott Bay fishing with the man of my dreams, my partner, Lillian Garrow, who's a lifelong fisherman, Muckleshoot fisherman. And seeing the Seattle like skyline, the Olympics, the Rainier, that whole like being in the middle of somewhere and then 
filling our fish box and the smell of salmon, like the whole thing. I love all, all of it. Um, and then my birthday's in September, September 1st for anybody who wants to send me a birthday gift. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) but huckleberries are usually in their prime at that time. And we go up to the huckleberry meadows and, um, and we go to a really special spot, a couple of special spots up there. But I always like to think of that as being nature's gift to me for my birthday (laughs) (laughs) but it's like you're at the top of the mountain and you're just eating it you know and so many times we look at mount tahoma mount rainier and we say man it's making me hungry like just look at it like i want to eat that mountain mountain. (laughs) (laughs) and and on my birthday every year i get some of that Well, wow, that's fantastic. It is a beautiful area that um, that we are fortunate enough to live in. It's gorgeous. The center of the universe. Um, just a, a side question. Uh, does he fish on the Duwamish? Does yeah. He, yeah? There's, yeah. I, I live on the Duwamish, uh, literally on a sailboat on the Duwamish. Um, and I, I, you know, I bet I've seen uh, this man of your dreams drive at some point. <laughs> <laughs> Let me guess. Uh, anywhere from uh, wearing rain gear is it? Are we talking about the same person? Yeah. Yeah. yeah totally. totally. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's beautiful. You talked about in your TED talk. You talked about um, plant and animal communities, which is such a an intimate and inclusionary phrasing. I, I love that idea of an an ecosystem. What role does that kind of perspective play in the work that you do and in the way that you look at nature and wild food? We, yeah, we, you know, refer to the trees as the tree people and the salmon as the salmon people. And there's something about giving it personhood. I think that makes you consider it in a different way. Um, there's something about that different level of respect and understanding that our foods are more than just our like resources and commodities to be extracted from the land, that they have something to teach us and that they, and that's how they sort of personify who we are as Coast Salish people. You know, they're, mm. they uh, are our greatest teachers. They teach us how to live on the land and with the land and be advocates for the land we were just talking about this with kelp and seaweed mm. and how they're like community builders you know the kelp forests the bullwhip kelp that's that quintessential long tube with the bulbous end and the big wavy long you know fern or fronds that come out the wings and um and how they create habitat for all of the all of the things on the land and then they're also like super tasty and they're also really good for your thyroid and (laughs) (laughs) if you're feeling tired and you can't stand back up again we give you kelp you know it's just it's such a builder and that's it does that by just being a living example of how to be a builder and so you know we might ask ourselves how we might be more like Whip kelp. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. <laughs> wow, that's such an alluring metaphor. It that just makes so much sense. The the community aspect of it. Um, I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about communities, like actual communities. Like you know, maybe start with a muckle shoot. Um, what? How are people coming together here? 
I know that you've been involved in, in a number of different things, but can you just give us kind of a rundown of what's happening uh, among your community and, and others like it to rebuild our food system and reconnect with what's indigenous? Um, I think that this the work that I do has been happening for a very long time. It's just my time to do it. And it looks like, you know, being called food sovereignty. Um, I think about the treaty right negotiations in the 1850s. And this was coming out of like a time of apocalypse, you know, a cultural collapse entirely for the Muckleshoot people, for, for everyone in the Northwest who had who had just watched pandemics, you know, wipe out their, um, their communities for uh, almost a hundred years, smallpox, influenza, tuberculosis. And then all these new arrivers had happened, this, these new settlers to the Northwest. And they sat down and wrote treaties. Um, they negotiated those to cede millions of acres of land to the US government in return for certain rights. And those rights, where at first, the very first thing they negotiated was the food because they knew that, you know, that was part of our creation story and who we are. And, uh, and then there's been a generation that's held it up ever since. And this, in this generation, it's really about, you know, what you just said, like being able to return and restore those connections because it's, we're moving out of this sort of survival mode into a time of opportunity to heal. Mm. And, uh, and so rekindling our relationships with those things are incredible. And, and I'm saying that in that, in that facet, but on the community level, but tribes are incredible advocates for, you know, Muckleshoot has seen incredible success with our salmon um, recovery efforts mm -hmm. in one of the most challenging ecosystems in this country. We have uh, mm -hmm. been able to bring back entire runs of salmon through our, our management systems. And so, and you know, we do that for every two fish that we that we are putting out of these hatcheries, one of them is ours and the other goes to commercial industry. We're doing that because we're generous, because we are generous people. And also because without the resource, there is no right. And without the resource, there is no muckle shoot. Like we're, that is who we are. And so we have to maintain that work. And that's just one tribe. Pialup has killer programs, Tulalip, Suquamish, like the whole, every tribe has a fisheries project that they're working on. Lower Elwha, like what they're doing with the, the dam removal and the restoration of that run, it's really powerful. Um, and every, you know, that has led me to be really curious about what else is going on across the country. And every tribe across this country has some sort of food movement going on, which is so cool. It's just like, what a good time. What an honor to witness all that work. Wow, that's powerful. What's the reason that it's becoming, it's, it's coming into the, the, the general lexicon? Am I right about that? Or is that just that I've started paying attention to it? Is there more prominence? Is there more awareness? Is there more of a movement happening right now? I think so. I think it's telling of our time. Like a hundred years ago, I would be put in jail for talking like this, you know, as a native woman. I, uh, you know, 20 years ago, probably wouldn't even have been considered on a podcast. <laughs> I don't even know if they existed 20 years ago, but like, you know, the, the presentation and the programs and all this stuff that has happened, it, 
it really is the time that we're in. Um, it's telling. It's telling of our time. The strength of the movement. The um, yeah, the fact that we're in the sort of orbit of consciousness writ large <laughs> like for the mm-hmm. what and seems like the first time. And the ability to communicate to communicate quickly to kind of tie all these voices together or at least to have a common dialogue between all these voices it seems like we're in an unprecedented time right now of this global communication and however locally we want to keep it it seems that that's i imagine there's uh, a lot of connection between some of these tribes uh, talking about this i agree yeah that's true the whole social media realm uh, everyone has access to, you know, getting information out in the world nowadays. That's new. That's new. It's it's pretty fresh, and uh, where, and I mean that in both ways to take it. Um, where would uh, you like to see this subject and this conversation continue? Maybe in the, just the short term. I, um, right now, I'm really curious to know not just about the native producers, food producers in our area, but what their needs are to be able to like build capacity and reach whatever goal they have. To me, I get asked a lot, like, how do we buy food from a native food producer? And, um, and there are a couple of great resources out there, but I also am just wanting to know what they need um, to be able to grow. And if they even want to grow, maybe they just want to feed their own people, or maybe they want to, beyond school lunch menus. I don't know. Um, so I'm really curious about that at this time. Um, can't think of anything else. (laughs) You've also got a a podcast you're working on. Am I I right about that? Yeah. Uh, we're in the second year of live with the seasons, which, uh, we release a seasonal episode. We're gonna, we're actually doing our recording for the spring episode this week. Um, and really that podcast is about helping people to sort of like get in touch with the cycles of the season and the cycles of life. And here are some plants to think about and here are some sort of actions and social emotional steps we can take and hold in this season. And most of it is like, when you hear it, you're like, oh yeah, I do that unconsciously. Um, I think we're more, you know, motivated by the seasons you mean. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Live, live with the seasons. Yeah. I think we're more motivated by the plants and nature around us than we think we are. <laughs> sure. Yeah, absolutely. Right? Um, I, I think about that with the night sky in that a- every person in the entire, on the entire planet until light pollution became a thing was way more tied into the seasons and the night skies, uh, you know, changing, um, and I think about that with uh, plants growing with, uh, you know, early springs and, and late summers and, and how that shifts in itself. And I haven't been able to break the code and maybe you can help me with this. I kind of feel like there's way more than four seasons. I think we can split this up on into, again, with the custodianship and, and eating from the land. This is at this window and then this window happens it, it's just it seems like it keeps getting more uh, fractional the more you more you appreciate it oh yeah totally we did an episode last year called late summer because 
there's summer and then there's late summer. Mm -hmm. <laughs> there's something else that happens there that's just sort of undeniable shift in the yeah. energy. Yeah. <laughs> it's almost like a boomerang effect. It's like you think summer and then it comes back. It gives you a little juice right before you get into that, that, that fall yep. season. And I've found, you know, November and December in the, in the Pacific Northwest can hit like mm -hmm. a hammer. It's, there's, a, there's a switch. It's real volatile uh, weather shifting. And then it starts to settle down again. And that's like the first part of winter. I love it. I, I'll talk about weather forever. I love it. <laughs> uh, so sorry to sorry to take this over, but this has been weather chat with Chris. <laughs> <laughs> but it's related, right? I mean, it seems it totally so is. Yeah. No, we have every culture globally has been sort of operating off of a lunar calendar forever until very recently we moved over to this sort of Gregorian twelve month calendar. But if you look back into those moons and what they're named after, the 13 moons, uh, you know, there's a windy time in the Northwest. There's a time when frogs talk. There's the moon of Salal. There's the moon of Blackberry. There's the moon of um, King Salmon. There's a the moon of Chum Salmon. There's the moon when the elk mating cry happens. Um, you know, that's just here everywhere has everywhere where you're from i'm sure australia has you know at least has some 13 moon calendar too that helps mm -hmm. you sort of know what food is at its peak season what action is happening in nature um yeah yeah, those are things that we just most people i don't even think it even occurs but it does seem that there is this sort of renaissance of that of that way of thinking it, and it isn't a it isn't a renaissance it's it's something that's been there all along but maybe uh, we're turning our focus back to it now i certainly hope that that's the case me too um, yeah well let me ask a couple of questions that we kind of like to ask all of our guests um if you don't mind um okay. what is what are you eating or drinking lately that you're really excited about? You mentioned morels, so that's one. Mm -hmm. um, well, this morning I was out harvesting chickweed and cleavers because they just sort of sprouted up um, over the weekend. And those are just those early wild spring greens that are growing in your garden, sort of bugging you a little bit, but are so good and tasty and really nutritious. Should a person just Anytime they see a, a, a weed or a, 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 a sprout of a plant they don't know, should they just taste it? No. <laughs> <laughs> no, that doesn't work across get, the board. Get to, know, get to know what it is first. Make sure you're eating the right. There are some poison foods out there, you know, and depending yeah. where you're at. Like in our area, poison hemlock looks just like wild mm -hmm. carrot. Like, ooh. You really want to make sure you know what you're harvesting. That's what I was wondering about the trial and error earlier in the conversation is how, how was it figured out what is the healthy mushroom to eat and which one will just put you down for a week? You know, mm. same thing with, it, with the, what you had just mentioned as well. I, I don't need an answer necessarily to that, but it's just something that always, you know, who was the first person to eat a carrot? You know, those kind of those kind of questions where what led you to it and what were you listening to or what was speaking to you that made you say this is this is a safe bet or this goes with this illness a lot of our creation stories about how foods became foods for the people were either gifted to us by 
Dukova creator, Snoqual, like he has a bunch of different names here in the North Northwest, the moon, basically the changers is the moon. Um, and also have come to us in dreams. And like the teaching is, is to, to say a prayer, to ask for help, to humble yourself, listen to your dream and then act on it. And, um, and that's how Huckleberry became food for the people, you know, or medicine for the people too. Wow. Yeah. Beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. And in terms of, uh, in terms of reading, what's, uh, what, what's on your radar right now? I am, uh, <laughs> I feel like I should say something that's like so totally aligned with what I'm talking about. And it kind of is, but I'm, I'm reading a book my cousin told me about called, um, Oh my gosh, what is it called? It's about French babies. <laughs> I can't remember. Oh, raising baby or something like that. But it's about how the French just so like inherently raise their kids to like babies are sleeping at eight weeks old. And that's so not what we're taught. And um and then they they also sit down and like quietly eat meals and we're trying to figure that out in our life right now. <laughs> the answer is like starve them basically like don't let them snack <laughs> so, anyways it's a really in it's a really interesting book about what we what we just accept in our psyche and mm. and then that there are actual ways to not have to live like that so mm. and yeah. that does seem related to what what your focus what you focus on and it ties back to what you were talking about earlier in terms of um orienting children to think in these ways, to think in these ways of, you know, seeing the world as something that we are a part of, that we cultivate, that we make arrangements with, agreements with. Would you say it, it's, it fit, it's in line with that? 100%. Yeah. And just understanding like how, you know, I'm outnumbered, to be honest. Like <laughs> I can do all these things for my children, but then they go out in the world and there's a whole world out there that's promoting other things that I really, that don't align with what I'm trying to give them the best skills to cope with, you know, like the whole heroes and holidays curriculum, basically at the school, mm -hmm. like K-12, that's all they get. And it's like, Insane. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I love it put like that too. Heroes yeah. and holidays. Ugh. I was trying to be nice about it. <laughs> no, that's <laughs> great. That was very, that was very nice. <laughs> that's a quotable. That's a good one. <laughs> the Umami Podcast is produced by TNE Networks. Find us anywhere you get podcasts and on Instagram at The Umami Podcast. Also, don't forget to check out our website where you can find tons more resources about today's subject. While you're there, consider supporting us with a small monthly donation or one-time gift. And please tell a friend about us. You're listening to the TNE Network.